Good morning, everyone. My name is Jenny. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and it's really good to be with you this morning. Um, I have one announcement before we begin, and it is an exciting one. Um, as we launch into our new community as Emmanuel Anglican Church, we are also simultaneously doing this very strange thing of kind of coming back together in person um, as we launch into this new church we're becoming. And so a lot is happening around here at one time. Uh, it's really good and exciting things. On April 18th, what we're going to start doing in this building during church, um, which we're going to move to 10 a.m. outside, is for kids birth through four years old, we're going to have Emmanuel Kids. We're going to have Kids Church in this building, in these kids' classrooms. And what we're going to need from you is to help us, to volunteer, because we're going to need a lot of volunteers per kids in order to kind of keep us safe and have regulations and guidelines. Um, what we're going to need is we're going to need a lot of people. And so what we're asking for you is to consider being one of those people who comes and serves with our kids in this building, a thing that we are really excited about. Um, and it's, it's important to say that as a church, as we are becoming our own church um, right now in this season, we want to be a people who serve. We want that to just be true about us, to be true about us as a community, that we are the kinds of people who serve, who move towards others in the service of Jesus and in the service of the least of these. So volunteering with kids for us is not a place where kids get babysat so that the real big important stuff can happen with grown-ups in the sanctuary or out in the parking lot. For us, the work that God is doing in our church is in these classrooms, is in the heart of children, the hearts of children in our church. And we're really excited about that work that God is doing. And we want to invite you into that place. As we move into this new season together, we believe that working with our children is a way of planting kingdom seeds that we're going to see grow into the fruit of the kingdom of God. And we want you to be a part of this work for us, with us. So if you'd like to do this, and I, can, I would ask all of you to consider this as a way for you to serve our church, um, if you feel comfortable doing it this way. What we, I would ask for you is to go to our website. There's gonna be a button, a very obvious place where you can say volunteer with kids, or you can email our kids pastor, Annie Boydston at Annie at atltrinity.org, and you can let her know that you would like to serve. We're really excited about this, looking forward to it, and thank you already ahead of time for committing to serve with us at Emmanuel. We're going to um, continue in the series we've been in for the last few weeks in the season of Lent, which is Nothing Can Separate Us. What we've been doing is we've been doing the classic kind of Lent thing of leaning into the dark places, thinking about ourselves and, and the world and the state of things and how um, dead we are in sin, but we are also simultaneously thinking about how alive we are in Jesus. We've been thinking about the work that Christ has done for us um, in the world, in his life and death and resurrection that made it so that we can't actually be separate from the love of God. Nothing we can do can separate us from it. And so um, we're going to continue in that work today. We're going to uh, be in the uh, letter to the Hebrews, and uh, we're going to take a little bit of a different perspective than we have over the last few weeks, but I'm really excited about it. So we're going to start in Hebrews 1. Sorry, Hebrews 5, verse 1 through 10. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to see what this scripture has for us today. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, I begin by thanking you for the different images that we have for you in the Bible, Lord, um, but also for the work that you've done. These little pieces of images that we can put together um, in our minds and over the courses of our life so that we can see you better, Lord, so we can understand you more. So we ask you for the grace to lean into this image that you have given us in this text of Jesus as our high priest. Would you open our minds and our hearts to see this image, to ask what it means, what it means for the work that you did and what it means for us as your people. And thank you, Jesus, for being our high priest and for what all that means for us. It's in your name we pray, amen. So obviously we're gonna talk a lot about priests today and that's very likely a word that has some sort of meaning or connotation to you. For some of us, it just feels like a really ancient word or a super churchy word, um, maybe even like a kind of scary word for some of us. And then for others of us, we've had really lovely experience with priests, that it's actually a pastoral word, a word that means you've been cared for in your life. And I hope that's true for, um, for a lot of us. So it's helpful to kind of put some definitions around what a priest actually is, what a priest does according to the witness of, of scripture and, and how we know it in the world. So a priest is understood in the Bible as a person, a human being who is a kind of bridge between God and people, a sort of mediator between these two spaces, a kind of common space and a holy space. There are human beings that are called by God to live in the middle, to actually be a bridge and a mediator between the two. So our text today begins by explaining the role of a priest in the lives of the people of God, and that priests serve kind of these two roles in life, and the first being a liturgical and ceremonial rule, which we'll talk about in a second, and a pastoral role. So with the liturgical role, this is the way that we can think about this is just that they're the one in charge of sacrifices. So if you go all the way back to the Old Testament and start to think about how things worked back then with, um, with priests and temples and tabernacles and all of that, um, the priests were the people who were kind of in charge of the holy things, um, things that were brought into the temple, the way that the sacrificial system worked. The priests were kind of the bosses over all of this. They were the people who understood how to deal with uh, holy things and things coming into holy spaces with God. Our text today says, priests were put in charge of things pertaining to God on the people's behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Sacrifices were not a way of appeasing God or twisting God's arm. That's not what the priests did. They weren't kind of this God manipulator. What they were rather was um, people who were able to take these sacrifices as a way of expressing and embodying God's working of atonement for their sins. 
we then have this kind of pastoral role that priests play where they would just be like pastors. They would look after the people of God. Um, they would see them as the, the people that they were meant to communicate the words of God to, the love of God to, the care of God to, um, which is a really lovely thing that I don't think we talk about enough in terms of these um, priests. You know, when we think about Moses, we ought to think about someone who is like a father to his people. That was his role. So we see both a kind of an embodying of spiritual realities in the life and work of a priest, but also this kind of gentleness in leadership, which is a really beautiful thing. The second half of Exodus doesn't get a lot of love, I think. Um, there, you know, Prince of Egypt was great, yes. And so it gave us this picture of the first half of Exodus that is like really fantastic and interesting. Um, and yet this second half of Exodus, for me, has gained um, even more love in my heart as I've studied it over the years and really looked at what God is doing in the second half. So after God frees his people from Egyptian slavery and brings them kind of out into this wide wilderness place in order to bring them into the promised land to live as God's holy and consecrated people. He has to give them ways in which to live together, rules which to live by. And so he begins doing this with Moses. He gives the Ten Commandments and he gives a lot of kind of rules and rituals that sound so archaic and so strange to so many of us and yet they were incredibly meaningful. And one of the like rules and regulations and things he does is he tells priests how to be priests. And one of those things is how to wear what priests ought to wear. So that we are given these like strange and incredible images of what priests are meant to wear when they walk into the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwelt, um, when they walk into this holy place. I, we're only going to talk about a couple of things, but just to give you an image, they were head to toe covered in things that are meant to um, embody who they are and what it is that they're doing. There's like not an inch of them that isn't covered with something that has meaning that's supposed to bring into the temple with, with them something that is meaningful and that kind of spiritual reality. So they started with like headdress kind of things like these huge headdresses and like metal things and layers and layers of fabric and all kinds of different things happening on these priests. So the two things I want to talk about are this. Um, the first thing that I want to say that priests would wear when they would walk into the tabernacle on, you know, this, this whole um, garment situation that's happening is they would have these two stones and on one stone there would be six of the names of the tribes of Israel and on the other there would be the other six, so the 12 tribes, and they would put them on their shoulders. And this was a way for these priests to feel the weight of the community on them as they walked into the temple, to feel the weight of the responsibility of keeping and sustaining this people, that they would actually feel weighed down by it. They would be reminded by the weight of them on their shoulders. And the other thing that I think is really important to um, point out that these priests would wear is one is called a breast piece of judgment, which sounds very alarming um, and it kind of is, but it's like this um, metal piece that has on it 12 stones and precious jewels on it um, that each represents one of, this, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you can see like all over their body, they're wearing the names of Israel on themselves. They're carrying the people in. It's not a, a, a 
um, vocation divorced from the people who they're working on behalf of. They actually bring them in really close with them, represented on these things. So as they wear this breast piece of judgment, they walk into the Holy of Holies. They have the, the needs and names of the people on their heart before them as they deal with their sacrifices in the midst of the holy presence of God. So on their person, these priests would embody what they are meant to be as they worked on behalf of these people, these weak, um, grumbling, strange little group of people. The priest would wear them on himself as though he was bringing himself to God. He would embody these people. And so the text then goes into Jesus as our high priest. We see Jesus embodying in himself these two natures, this kind of dual reality of being fully God and fully man. And we need to think about that in order to understand Jesus as our priest, as our high priest, that Jesus was both a perfect sacrifice for us and a perfect mediator for us. And in both of those things, we're in himself as our high priest, the priest and the sacrifice. So the thing we want to look at, um, the way these things kind of get played out in this text is first that we see the writer saying that Jesus's vocation of priesthood begins with this moment where the clouds part at his baptism and God calls him beloved. He says, you are my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. And so for Jesus, this is the place he lives out his vocation of his priesthood is out of this fullness of the love of God. He embodies the full love of the Father for humanity in himself. And secondly, Jesus, like human priests we see in this text, is able to sympathize with those he carries into the temple with him. Because by becoming human, experiencing suffering and weakness, he can sympathize with us, he can identify with us, he's in full solidarity with us as human beings. The text says he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It wasn't just his body that suffered. He suffered in his own heart. The way that he engaged with God in the world and brought sadness and worry and suffering to God was his offering, was part of his sacrifice. In the same way that Jesus embodies his belovedness and our suffering, he embodies these priestly vestments in himself. In the same way that the priests had to put them on themselves and carry them into the temple, Jesus has those things written on the inside of himself in his character and who he was made to be in the image of God. That Jesus doesn't actually have to wear the stones on his shoulders because already on him and in himself is our names bearing the responsibility of us and taking responsibility for the people of God, sustaining us through himself, through what he's doing, through his own suffering. As he carries his cross, Jesus carries our names on his shoulders. And as Jesus gets on the cross and his arms are out, what is bare before God is this breast piece of judgment with our names inscribed on it, with our names inscribed on the inside of Jesus's actual heart. Jesus holds us in himself before God. This is our high priest. This is why the writer of Hebrews says that that he is our high priest and he is perfect and his sacrifice was perfect because he took all of these things in himself and he was our priest perfectly because he was our sacrifice perfectly. 
Jesus embodies all of these priestly things in himself. The text then goes on to say something that may feel strange to you as we read it, that Jesus learned obedience and that he was made perfect. And this can like bring up something in us that feels like maybe, okay, was he not obedient but learned obedience? Was he not perfect but was made perfect? And the, I think the biblical witness is clear that that is not the case. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So, so what is he or she saying? I think that what they're saying is rather than Jesus becoming perfect, that he wasn't maybe before and then he became that way, is that Jesus, in the same way that you and I learn to understand who God is and who we are, that Jesus also went through that kind of life development process and that the process for him was suffering. It was the way by which he understood who God was and what his vocation on the earth was. And through that, he was able to save all of us through what he did for us. That Jesus would not actually share our nature if he did not also share our limits. I think it's, pos- it's possible and important to think about the fact that Jesus could be perfect and yet not fully understand. Jesus could be obedient and yet not fully understand. Jesus perhaps learned, like you and me, to grasp the grace and mercy of God throughout his life and through the experience of suffering, that it actually deepened him in his knowledge of who God is and who he is, to understand the meaning of his life. Jesus received the full belovedness of God without doing any of his earthly ministry yet. And Jesus lived into the full obedience with his your will be done in the garden of Gethsemane. It was only then that he could become the high priest that God destined him to be. A sympathetic priest. One who understands our weakness. One who also has cried out to God with loud cries and tears. And in the priesthood of Jesus... The sacrificial system is dissolved from within. A new covenant has been made in him. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the priest. He's both. And the purpose of Jesus's life was to bring God to us and to bring us to God. And through being these two things perfectly, Jesus did just that. Jesus is a reliable priest. He's a priest perfectly and forever. And because Jesus is our high priest, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And yet I think it is a mistake if we end things there. The gift of Jesus's life, the gift of this text in particular, is to remind us that we can actually be like him in his priesthood, in this vocation, we're actually called into the same thing. If he can become like us in our suffering, then we can become like him in our suffering. One of the most radical things the Bible tells us is that we're meant to be like Jesus. Paul even says, we have the mind of Christ. Every time I read that, I feel like I'm, it's audacious, you know. And yet, We are called to be like him, to believe that we can become more and more like Jesus. 
as Christians, we are called into a kind of priesthood ourselves. There's evidence to it in both the Old and the New Testament that there's something about us that is holy and separate and that is meant to be a mediator of God to the earth that God loves, to the people that God loves, that like Jesus, we are meant to live in such a way that we bring people to God and that we bring God to people. And in order to take up this most holy vocation, we must do two things, I think. And I think this text is very clear about that. First, live into the light of our belovedness. Truly believe that God could create us and love us and that we could live in the midst of that. Um, That we could have the light of God and the love of God shining over us all the time like clouds parting over Jesus' baptism. That that's the reality we live in and under. And yet at the same time, understand that we must suffer in order to become like him. This is like the Christian conundrum that we could live in the midst of the full belovedness and anxiety-free life of God and Jesus and we can at the same time know that being a person who suffers makes us more like him. We become sons and daughters by suffering for those that he loves. I remember being given the book Boundaries. I think I talk about it like probably every couple of sermons that I give because it was so impactful to me. Um, And it really felt like the gospel to me. It felt um, like such a life-giving thing to me. It helped me get out of some kind of abusive and codependent relationships that I was in at the time. But it, it also did something in me that's not the book's fault. It was my own immaturity, but it changed my thinking so that whenever I suffered in a relationship, I started to think of that as a place where I needed to put a boundary. It started bringing up alarm bells when I would would suffer for someone else saying, oh, this isn't right. I actually need to put a boundary here. And this isn't me saying that if you are in an abusive or coercive or codependent situation that you should stay there and suffer there. This is not that. This is about our inability to feel pain on behalf of others and not even that, but like feel uncomfortable on behalf of others. I believe it's why we're so polarized because each side is telling the other how to suffer and both sides are saying, I won't do that. <laughs> it's, the, it's what they're asking them to do to lay down something like this isn't right. And the other side is saying, no, I will not lay that down. This is mine. I will not suffer. It's why the question in terms of racial reconciliation, why should I apologize or pay for something someone else did if I didn't do it? That's why that is not actually a Christian question because why we pay for someone else who did something that we didn't do is because we are like Jesus because he bore on himself the names of us who did something that he didn't do. He wears us on his shoulders as he carries us. He wears the responsibility of being our God, of being our savior on himself. And he bears the love of, himself, of us in himself, in his heart, as he brings us in judgment before God on his heart. Our judgment in Jesus's heart cannot be separated And so what I think Jesus is asking us to do is say, may the judgment of others and your own heart not be separated. Suffer for others. Bear the responsibility and the weight of them. Learn to have their names of those you love and do not love inscribed on the inside of your heart like Jesus and suffer on their behalf because that's how we become like him, the one who loved us. We've all been through a lot the last year. It's been hard. 
it's been um, the hardest year of our lives for some of us. And yet, I have not realized in any other time in my life more than over the past year that I suffer so little for Jesus. It's why I wear a mask. Like, I know I'm supposed to, so like, that's also why I wear it. But I wear a mask because if that's the small way that I can suffer so that someone else doesn't have to suffer at all, then I'll do that. That maybe even it's a priestly thing to put on myself something that's uncomfortable so that I can live on behalf of someone else. Maybe it makes us more like Jesus to do that. And so as we move into Holy Week and we begin to think about Jesus and his sacrifice and what he did for us, which is what we do as Christians, we contemplate the cross, we think about what Christ did for us, we think about the sacrifice and the suffering that he did on our behalf. I believe that you and I are called to also think, how do I become like him in his suffering, in his sacrifice? How do we become priestly in that way? Jesus showed us how you become the high priest of the world through suffering. How can I become more priestly in that? I'm asking Jesus, what can I do? Who can I love for Jesus? How can I give more of myself? How can I lay myself down more? Paul says in Romans that if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, he says, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is how Jesus shows us how to be priests, to love other people, to suffer for them, to bring them to Jesus, to wear them on ourselves, to bear the responsibility of others to take them in ourselves. And when we bring ourselves to God in prayer, bring them as well, their needs as much as ours. So God, in this last few weeks of Lent, may our contemplation of this suffering, obedient work of Jesus, never be separated from who we are in him, from the gift of being like him, even and especially in the ways that we suffer. God, give us the wisdom to see the places in which you are calling us to suffer of our own accord. Would you give us the wisdom to step out of places in which we are suffering where it is not in obedience with Jesus? Would you call us to be more like you, Lord? Would we not run away when we feel tension, when we feel fear, Lord? Would we lean into those places and ask you to make us more like yourself? Thank you for being our high priest, Jesus, for showing us the way, for showing us our vocation. It's in your name we pray, amen. I read somewhere this week that um, having communion, having it in our hands, is a way we know every single week where Jesus is going to be. Um, even, that we, even though we know God's spirit is always with us, there's this sense when we come to communion like it's there a little bit more. And so as we come together for communion in a moment, I want you to remember that and think about Jesus being in, in your hands if he feels lost to you most of the week, that you know that when you come up for communion in that moment and you put the, the bread in your hands, that he's there, that his sacrifice is there, that your priest is there. So we'll see you in a minute.